With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here, and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. Tulare County, my home county, gears up for crowds at the acclaimed World Ag Expo. You've been hearing it, but I'll tell you again, California's largest agricultural gathering comes to Tulare County on February 14th through the 16th, that's tomorrow through Thursday, when the 2023 World Ag Expo opens at the International Agri-Center. The annual event is expected to draw more than 1,000 attendees from California, other states, and even more than 30 countries. That's what the organizers say. The expo will feature more than 1,200 exhibitors and 2.6 million square feet of showgrounds. The event highlights agricultural innovations. Among new ones this year is a robotic system that conducts surveillance of bee colonies to protect tree nut growers from colony collapse. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report. And don't forget, you can score $3 off your ticket purchase online for the World Deck Expo just by entering the code AGNET, that's A-G-N-E-T, off your online ticket purchase. And now let's get into our show headlines. The state of California has the highest standards when it comes to pesticide use. There are roughly 13,000 registered pesticides across the state of California. And the Department of Pesticide Regulations' Martha Stewart says the pesticide-applied produce goes through a robust testing process so that consumers can have the cleanest plate when it's time to eat. Well, California has a robust program where we have inspectors, DPR um, inspectors, uh, scientists themselves, who go out uh, and collect uh, produce samples uh, from every areas, including farm markets, the um, et- ethnic uh, stores, the, you know, we collect um, samples, um, everything, and not only from those stores, but also the ones that are coming in for, from other countries. Um, we work with, uh, with the, on the border and make sure that the products that we collect, we send it to the labs. Uh, we have two labs right now. We have one in uh, Sacramento. Uh, and this is in coordination with the Department of Food and Agriculture and another one in Santa Ana. Uh, so they, what they do, they have scientists there, so, so they analyze it to make sure that they don't have um, high residue levels of unregistered pesticides that, that, that are not allowed in California. Once they find if there is a, a pesticide that it's illegal to be used on that crop, then they definitely, our inspectors will go back to that to that uh, place, uh, the supermarket, um, and will remove all all that crop from being sold to the public. And yes, DPR um, currently has over 13,000 registered pesticides, and that includes not only agricultural, but um, antimicrobials and home and garden. Stay tuned as we'll have more from the DPR in the coming shows, but right now here's Brian German with more Ag News. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is engaging with industry members on the new organic rules that were just recently released. During a Senate Agriculture Committee hearing, Undersecretary of Agriculture Jenny Lester Moffitt outlined some of the department's actions related to the organic sector. We're already working with producers as well as certifiers on implementation of that rule. Um, We'll close some of the loopholes and add new Uh, players that have now been part of the organic industry that weren't part of the organic industry in the inception to make sure that we have a level playing field for all producers. At the same time, we're also growing the organic producer base uh, by through a transition to organic partnership program. 
So this is field-based technical assistance driven by producers and organizations uh, to mentor new and aspiring organic farmers to be able to attain certification as well. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, continuing our coverage of the House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure hearing on the Waters of the U.S., or WOTUS, rule. The hearing was held by the Subcommittee on Water Resources and Environment. Representative David Rouser is a Republican from North Carolina and chair of the subcommittee. He asked witness Garrett Hawkins, president of the Missouri Farm Bureau, how WOTUS affects farmers. Mr. Hawkins, um, can you speak to how overregulation and broad scope interpretations like significant nexus gives firepower firepower, uh, to radical environmentalists and trial lawyers in particular, and how it creates an easy path to stall or shut down family farms and animal agriculture in North Carolina, Missouri, and across the country? Thank you for the question, Mr. Chairman. I would say if I could use one word to describe how my fellow farmers and ranchers feel, it's overwhelmed. You know, we feel like this new rule essentially shifts the burden of proof back to us rather than the agencies. It's almost the notion that we're guilty until proven innocent. Uh, And while folks talk about the exemptions that agriculture has had, uh, the, the reality is I wouldn't be testifying today if those long-standing exemptions were tight enough that we weren't having farmers embroiled in litigation, not just in Missouri, but all around the country. So as you look at an expansive definition of WOTUS and the potential for more features to fall under federal regulatory control, Our farmers have to be concerned about the citizen suit provisions and what that could mean uh, in challenging normal everyday practices. They have every right to be concerned about future investment in their farming operations and have to second guess whether putting in place that conservation practice or building that structure or investing in that building is worth it if you're gonna be embroiled in red tape in a potentially years long process. So overwhelmed uh, with the uncertainty that comes with an expansive rule, Mr. Chairman. That, that would summarize how our farmers feel. Uh, Ms. Ms. Huey, uh, everybody wants affordable housing. Uh, you hear that talked about all over. I certainly hear it back home. Uh, why can't we have more affordable housing uh, when prices are skyrocketing uh, left and right? Uh, how would this affect affordable housing? 
Meanwhile, California Democrat Congressman Jared Huffman had a different take on WOTUS in his comments to witness Dave Owen, professor of law and faculty director of scholarly publications at the UC College of Law in San Francisco. Clean water matters, and this Clean Water Act is important. People throughout this country deserve clean water, and they value clean water. And I think they're, frankly, if they're paying attention, uh, pretty alarmed uh, when you see proposals that would roll back protection for 70% of the rivers, 50% of the wetlands that have had that protection for the last 50 years. That's extreme. Uh, That's troubling. And so um, that's an important part of our our context here. Mr. Owen, I appreciate your discussion of the importance of protecting headwater streams and unconnected wetlands, intermittent ephemeral water bodies, all of which would uh, dramatically lose protection under uh, the Trump administration's dirty water rule. And uh, you discussed also how this contributes to toxic, costly algal blooms and other problems in downstream waters. Um, I appreciate the fact that you, you drew our attention to the Clean Water Act's opening section which states that water quality regulation must provide for the protection of and propagation of fish, shellfish, and wildlife, as well as provide for recreation. This wasn't just about navigation or navigable waters was the jurisdictional hook that got us into uh, the important challenge of protecting water quality throughout the United States. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's livestock news, according to year-end data released by USDA and compiled by the U.S. Meat Export Federation, U.S. beef exports set annual records for both volume and value last year. Pork exports finished lower year-over-year, but their value was the third largest on record. Despite slowing towards the end of the year, beef exports reached 1.47 million metric tons. That's up 2% from the previous high in 2021. Export value climbed to a record $11.68 billion. That's up 10% from the year before, nearly 40% above the previous five-year average. The U.S. exported a record share of its record large beef production last year and at higher prices. Export value to South Korea was at $2.7 billion, up 13%, and an all-time record for any single destination. Exports to China and Hong Kong jumped 22%. Other markets in which beef exports achieved annual records included Taiwan, the Philippines, Singapore, Colombia, Guatemala, and the Dominican Republic. Now, pork exports finished the year on a decidedly upward trajectory as December shipments reached uh, 244.7 metric ton. That's up 13% year over year and the second largest of 2022. December export value up 14% at $687.3 million. The biggest note there, though, was Mexico. Pork exports to that country set a volume record in December on the way to a record-breaking year in which exports increased 10% to nearly 960,000 metric ton. Export value to Mexico up 21% to just over $2 billion, topping the $2 billion mark for the first time. Exports of U.S. lamb muscle cuts finished the year sharply higher year over year. As a matter of fact, 59% higher. That's the largest since 2019. If you'd like to see a detailed summary of 2022 export results for U.S. pork, beef, and lamb, you can go to the USMEF website, usmef.org. 
And a bipartisan group of senators did introduce the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act of 2023. The group includes Senators Chuck Grassley, along with his fellow Republican Deb Fisher, and Democrats Ron Wyden and John Tester. Lawmakers say the legislation would restore transparency and accountability in the cattle market by establishing regional cash minimums and equipping producers with more market information. That includes permanently authorizing a cattle contract library. Grassley said it's past time for Congress to stand with independent cattle producers and put an end to the cozy relationship between large meat packers and big cattle feedlots. Now, the legislation does require the creation of five to seven regions encompassing the entire continental U.S., then establish minimum levels of fed cattle purchases made through an approved pricing mechanism. The bill would also establish a maximum penalty for covered packers of $90,000 for mandatory minimum violations. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain, and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Improvements to a worldwide food staple. That's coming up on This Land of Hours. Rice, which is already the primary staple for half the world's population, is getting a makeover from a research team in New Orleans, Louisiana. The results are a more healthful grain and many potential new products. The team is making rice a more valuable commodity by developing new technologies that capitalize on the grain's natural health benefits. Research chemist Stefan Bow says they're interested in processing treatments that enhance resistant starch and other bioactive components. Studies are underway to determine bioactive compounds' role in the prevention of cancer, heart disease, and other diseases. Rice contains 76 to 78 percent starch, and cooked rice typically contains 1 or 2 percent of starch that resists digestion. But newer rice varieties have 8 to 10 percent or more. Resistant starch is not digested in the small intestine. Rather, it passes through to the large intestine and produces beneficial metabolites. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Many farmers sell grain and livestock and defer payment until the next tax year. But to properly defer the income for tax purposes, certain rules must be followed. I'll be back in a moment to discuss. Kansas State University consistently ranks in the top 10 of all ag schools. 97% of K-State ag graduates are employed or furthering their education. Learn more at ag.ksu.edu. 
I'll get back to the report in a moment, but I want you to know that Schrader Real Estate and Auction Company has sold farm to ranch land and farm equipment in 40 states. Learn how the Schrader family can help your family. Visit SchraderAuction.com. That's S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R Auction.com. To defer income, a deferred payment contract must be structured properly to prevent IRS from claiming that you had constructively received the income, even though you didn't actually receive it in the year of sale. There are three key points. Don't have the sale income credited to your account. Make sure the buyer doesn't set it apart for you. And ensure that the buyer doesn't make the funds available for you to access if you wanted it. A properly drafted deferred payment contract can satisfy these requirements. Make sure that the price of the goods is set at the specified time for delivery, but payment is deferred until the next tax year. The contract must be bona fide and entered into at arm's length, and you must not have any right to demand payment until the following year. That means you can't require payment upon demand. The contract, as well as the sale proceeds, must also be non-assignable, non-transferable, and non-negotiable. If structured in this manner, the IRS won't challenge the deferral as triggering constructive receipt rules. If it turns out you don't want or need to defer, just report the income in the year of sale. Also remember that you are unsecured until you get paid. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. After at least two years of gathering information from scientists and school nutrition workers and students themselves, Agriculture Secretary Tom Bilsack has just announced a proposed set of new nutrition standards for the meals that are served by schools participating in the national school lunch and breakfast programs. The proposed rules would, for example, put a limit on the amount of sodium and added sugars in school meals. But the changes in the standards will be phased in gradually to help students get used to the meals and make it easier for school food service folks to meet the standards. So we begin in the school year 2024 and 2025 with full implementation of all the standards across the board by the year school year 2029-2030. Giving schools and their students ample time to adjust to the new standards. Also, the new initiative has programs to technically and financially help small and rural schools that are having trouble meeting the standards. Bill Sykes says for millions of kids, the meals they get at school may be the only actual meal that they get, and it's important to make sure those meals are improving their health status. In the 1946 law that created the National School Lunch Program, Congress based basically suggested it was a measure of national security uh, to safeguard the health and well-being of our nation's children and to encourage the consumption of domestically produced nutritious agricultural commodities. So he says this new rule, making school meals healthier, is an opportunity to improve the health of the nation's children. And obviously it's an opportunity as well uh, to support our farmers. And Vilsack on the phone with reporters later said the new rules encourage schools to serve more fruits and vegetables. Also in this rule is, a, is a, an acknowledgement of the important role of developing a greater connection between local and regional providers and the schools that they can potentially serve. Uh, we have a local and uh, regional food purchasing agreement system in place, 77 agreements across the country where we are uh, trying to work ways in which we can encourage more uh, local and regional supplies. We think that's an important consideration. It will help farmers and help limit the problems in the food chain if something like COVID were to happen again. The Ag Department will be taking public comments on the proposed standards for the next couple of months, and after studying those comments, we'll publish final rules. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. 
This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. As we begin a new week, December corn has been range bound since new lows were set below the 585 level back on January 23rd. Southern Hemisphere weather premiums taken out then. We enter a time we think the market begins to buy acres ahead of the planting season here that's starting in the deep south. We see a continued rebound this week, pushing past $6, but finding resistance on that December contract above 610. Now, looking at new crop November soybeans made a nice recovery off their lows on the 25th of January, right near that 1330 level. However, one analyst says seeing some private forecasts of soybean carryover exceeding 425 million bushels triggers the question in his mind if July and August futures can hold $14 into the summer. AgriLiquid says it's crop nutrition that's precision agriculture. Their liquid fertilizers are engineered to help you deliver the right nutrition at the right time all season long. Learn more at agriliquid.com. This is the Bottom Line Report. Looking at the livestock trade, it'll be important, we think, technically for April live cattle to hold 164 or better here early week. And the first quarter pork production expected to surpass the fourth quarter. Only the second time in recent history that's ever happened. I'm Mark Oppold wishing you a profitable day, a profitable week ahead. Yesterday, while football fans nationwide watched the Super Bowl, many of them watched it over a plate of chicken wings. 1.45 billion of them to be exact, and that's according to projections released ahead of the big game by the National Chicken Council. That's an average of four wings per American. NCC spokesman Tom Super says it's a record figure sparked in part by lower retail prices year over year. Chicken wing prices are actually down double digits over a year ago. And the reason for that is twofold. The main reason is the wings were through the roof at the height of the pandemic. Prices were at all-time highs. Demand was at all-time highs. And if you think about it, you know, what did people do, you know, during the pandemic? They ordered takeout for the most part, right? We, we stopped going out to eat and pizza places and wing joints, they were designed for takeout. So they really didn't have to change their business models during the pandemic like other restaurants did. Super also credits an increase in in-home prepared foods, notably with air fryers for the increased demand. 
He says poultry producers have kept up with demands even amid the past year's avian influenza outbreak. Mostly egg-laying chickens have been uh, affected the most with the strain over the past year and a half. I think more than 75% of the birds have been the egg-laying hens, which is why you're seeing egg prices have increased dramatically. But broiler chickens, those chickens raised for meat, have been largely spared. Less than, I think, 5% of the total birds that have been infected by bird flu. So we haven't seen a, a spike in prices in chicken meat related to the outbreak, you know, knock on wood. He noted that if laid into in, 1.45 billion chicken wings would stretch between Kansas City's Arrowhead Stadium and Philadelphia's Lincoln Financial Field 62 times. That's also the equivalent to 840 loops around the Kansas City metro on Interstate 435 or 20.1 million chicken wings placed on each step leading up to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, made famous by Sylvester Stallone in the movie Rocky. NAFB contributed to that report, and now here's more agriculture news. Urban agriculture producers and advocates, you have until March 27th to apply for the latest round of USDA Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production Grants. Under this program, we will support the development of urban agriculture and innovative production projects through two categories, planning projects and implementation projects. That's Brian Gussie. He's with the Office of Urban Ag and Innovative Production. We hope to make available up to $7.5 million for grants for this particular program. This grant program is one of those programmatic opportunities that we're making available across the country to individual organizations that are engaged in agricultural activities in urban, suburban, but also in rural America. Breaking down specifics of the two grant programs available for application, First, planning projects initiate or expand efforts of farmers, gardeners, citizens, government officials, schools, and other stakeholders in urban areas and suburbs. Projects may target areas of food access, education, business and startup costs for new farmers, and development of policies related to zoning and other needs of urban production. While implementation projects accelerate existing and emerging models of urban, indoor, and other agricultural practices that serve multiple farmers. Projects will improve local food access and collaborate with partner organizations and may support infrastructure needs, emerging technologies, educational endeavors, and urban farming policy implementation. Applications for this latest round of urban agriculture and innovative production grants are to be submitted via www.grants.gov. There's a pre-recorded webinar on Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production Grants USDA website that provides an overview of the grant's purpose, project types, eligibility, and basic requirements for submitting an application. The webinar is found at www.usda.gov urban. Click the link to the Urban Agriculture and Innovative Production Grant page. USDA is also going to post a frequently asked questions document to help applicants with common questions and concerns related to the application process. Over the past couple years, we've received a number of interesting questions from would-be applicants that we've answered, and we make these answers available to anyone interested in applying for this grant opportunity. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. 
But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. You're going to need me. You're going to need us. All of us. You're going to need our help with your water, your air, your food. You're going to need our determination, our compassion. You're going to need the next generation of leaders to face the challenges the future will bring. And we promise we'll be there when you need us. Today, 4-H is growing the next generation of leaders. Support us at 4-H.org. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of today's agriculture news right now. In today's Agronomic Minute, brought to you by UPL, a leader in sustainable crop management solutions for California's orchards and vineyards. We're joined once again by Cassie Reeser, Technical Services Manager for UPL North America, who specializes in biosolutions. And now that is a pretty broad area, which um, seems to be getting more and more uh, attention in recent years with more growers uh, maybe being open to the idea of of giving them a try. And uh, even though um, it's a pretty broad sector, uh, Cassie, what are some of the biggest benefits you're seeing with um, different biosolutions that are available? Yeah, so primarily the functions are to protect and or strengthen plants against biotic and abiotic stresses. Um, increase nutrient use efficiency, boost overall plant and soil health while having a reduced impact on both humans and the environment compared to some of their conventional counterparts. Um, Biosolutions also provide farmers with additional tools to manage some rapidly changing regulations across the nation uh, while maintaining their crops nutrient use efficiency and crop health. And now working with uh, growers and other industry members, uh, is there seemingly more general interest in these types of products just due to the um, changing regulatory environment and now uh, with some more uh, documented benefits now being uh, shown with their use? Yes. And not only are regulations really driving uh, the interest, but also consumers are seemingly uh, driving some of the interest as well because there seems to be an increased demand for um, you know things like sustainability and um, some sort of sustainability metric. Gotcha. And so um, along with that uh, increased interest in them, that's helping to uh, drive innovation and new materials and new approaches all within that world of biologicals and the uh, different sectors of that. And now because of the variety out there, um, how can the different categories of biosolutions be um, broken down? And um, what are some of the key differences that growers should be aware of? Yeah. So kind of depending on where you go, you generally see three different buckets. Um, You see biocontrol, you see things like biostimulant and biofertilizers. So biocontrol solutions are usually registered through the EPA or CalDPR, and they contain a registered active ingredient or ingredients that provide, you know, scientifically proven pest control or disease control. And these products can help mitigate pest resistance, Uh, and especially chemical residue issues for improved harvested crop yield quality and grower profitability. Uh, Biostimulants, according to the 2018 Farm Bill, 
is defined as a substance or microorganism that when applied to seeds, plants, or on the rhizosphere, stimulates a natural, natural processes to enhance or benefit nutrient uptake, nutrient efficiency, tolerance to abiotic stress, or crop quality and yields. In addition, biofertilizers, according to the Biological Products Industry Alliance, or BPIA, contain living microorganisms that when applied to seed, plant, or soil, and inhabit the area around the roots or live in the roots. These microorganisms can promote plant growth by increasing the supply or availability of nutrients by stimulating root growth or by aiding other beneficial symbiotic relationships. So there's uh, certainly a lot of different options out there available to growers, uh, a lot of considerations to make when when looking at different biosolutions, and there's still a lot of questions out there about what might be the um, best approach or material. So uh, where can growers find some more information? Yeah, to learn about any of our products in particular, they can go to upl-ltd.com slash us or find your local sales representative to find out some more information about our new products. Well, very good. And again, this has been the latest installment of the Agronomic Minute, a weekly segment made possible through a content partnership with UPL. Thanks, Brian, and stay tuned as we'll have more of the day's agriculture news and farm features here on the Agnet News Hour. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and at statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search our name of Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet West. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. New crop solutions for specialty crop farmers and drip irrigation. CropX Technologies, a global leader in digital solutions for agronomic farm management, has acquired Thule Technologies, a precision irrigation company based in California. The acquisition will bring new data capture technologies to the CropX agronomic farm management system, as well as expand its market in California's drip-irrigated specialty crops. The two companies will merge their employees for a combined team with both on-farm and client service expertise in the specialty crop and drip irrigation space, as well as bring technology talent. The acquisition comes at a time when water is a hot commodity and precise watering technologies in agriculture is needed. Dr. John Gates, the senior vice president and global head of product at CropX, says, quote, The farming industry is at the front lines of global challenges to balance food security with water and other natural resources. We're committed to helping our customers manage water confidently and efficiently with technology. Tuli's unique tech and vast experience with California vineyards and orchards are a perfect fit. If you'd like to find out more information on this merge, you can visit CropX.com. 
Crop X will be featured at the World Egg Expo this week. If you haven't purchased your tickets, you can still go online and get $3 off by using the code AGNET. The weekly lunchtime seminar series from UC Cooperative Extension continues tomorrow with a discussion about how to ID and scout for insect pests. The online organic agriculture seminar series for growers takes place on Tuesdays from noon to 1. Next week, February 21st, will be a presentation on how, why, and when to choose between open-pollinated, hybrid, and land-raised seeds. The February 28th seminar will cover management of soil-borne plant pathogens with organic amendments. Biology and management of thrips and the diseases they spread will be the topic of discussion on March 7th. The seminar on March 14th will feature information on weed management on small farms and in organic production systems. The final seminar in the series will take place on March 21st with a presentation on recruiting owls and raptors for pest management. More information on the series is available on the California Certified Organic Farmers blog at ccof.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Thanks, Brian. And in more agriculture news, fishing ponds are an agritourism opportunity. More agritourism operators are incorporating fishing ponds as another way to earn income for their business. Here's USDA's Rod Bain with a report. It is becoming a growing part of various agritourism operations across the country. Fishing ponds. Chuck Sikra of University of Florida Extension offers examples of what this looks like across the country. In Florida, we have a lot of 20, 30, 40 acre quote unquote ponds. People don't fish them a lot, so they may actually lease them to a small group of people, a family, just like people lease hunting lands for, say, deer hunting, quail hunting, and restrict who can have access to it. But we also have ponds that people will charge so many dollars per day, and the public can come in and drop money off. Often it's a mailbox and go fish. They're limited how many fish they can keep. And then we have the more intensive where people stock, say catfish, and people come in and they fish and they pay by the pound or they pay a certain amount per day and they get to keep a couple, three fish. While there are several natural pods, some agritourism operators construct man-made fishing pods and stock with native species to catch. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. USDA says electric vehicles force ethanol demand lower. A new report from USDA's Economic Research Service suggests ethanol demand may decline with the rise of electric vehicles. The Global Demand for Fuel Ethanol through 2030 report suggests that global gasoline demand is expected to stagnate over the next decade, leaving changes in blend rates as the main determinant for future changes in fuel ethanol demand. After seeing strong growth for several years, U.S. ethanol-based demand for corn has plateaued over the last decade at about 5 billion bushels, or roughly 40% of U.S. corn production. Recently, demand for transportation fuels was reduced by the COVID-19 pandemic. Though these markets largely recovered, moving forward, increased adoption of hybrid or electric vehicles and continued fuel efficiency gains will decrease domestic gasoline consumption, which could decrease domestic fuel ethanol demand. These impacts could result in additional unutilized U.S. ethanol production capacity. The 114-page study is available on the Economic Research Service website, and AFB contributed to that report. Growers have some choices available to help address cold weather during grape bloom. Extension Specialist with the Department of Viticulture and Enology at UC Davis, Matthew Fidelibus, described one of the options that research has shown to be helpful. 
One is to spray what we call CPPU, which is 4-chlorophenerone. It's a plant growth regulator that improves sets of grapes and actually other plants too if it's applied during bloom. So it's basically just a plant hormone that tells the plant to send some resources to the berries that have been treated with this to the flowers and they'll tend to set more fruit. The downside of that is some of the fruit that sets will be small and also you may have delayed fruit maturity. So nothing is completely free. There's always sort of a trade-off. But if you do have a lack of fruit set and you can live with the possibility of mixed fruit size and uh, maybe delayed maturity, then that could be an option for you. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. And rounding out today's show with a recap of one of today's top stories from Agnet West, Brian German. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is engaging with industry members on the new organic rules that were just recently released. During a Senate Agriculture Committee hearing, Under Secretary of Agriculture Jenny Lester Moffitt outlined some of the department's actions related to the organic sector. We're already working with producers as well as certifiers on implementation of that rule. Um, we'll close some of the loopholes and add new Uh, players that have now been part of the organic industry that weren't part of the organic industry in the inception to make sure that we have a level playing field for all producers. At the same time, we're also growing the organic producer base uh, by through a transition to organic partnership program. So this is field-based technical assistance driven by producers and organizations uh, to mentor new and aspiring organic farmers to be able to attain certification as well. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Daniel Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.